This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are at the end of a study uh, of the book of Nehemiah. I think I'm going to do one more wrap-up next week, just an overview, but we're going to finish the book uh, today. So we're in Nehemiah 13. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the seat in front of you, so you could take that Bible out. And if you turn to page 232, you'll be able to track with us. I really encourage you to do that. So as we read along, it'll make a ton more sense to you if you have it in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you just take that one with you, take it home. Uh, That's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible and we got plenty more to replace that. So you just take that home with you. Today we're going to talk about, and they all lived happily ever after. I don't know if you can see quite where you are, but there's a uh, question mark at the end. So it's 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 actually a rhetorical question. And they all lived happily ever after And as you read the text, you're going to see the implied answer is uh, no, actually they didn't. Uh, There's some struggles here at the end. So let's pray and then we will jump in. God, we thank you for this study that you've led our church on since last November. Thank you for opening up this, uh, this story to us and you've revealed so much to us about your purposes and about your character. And we just pray as we wrap up today that that, Lord, where this text needs to be sober to us, it would be sober, uh, and where it needs to build uh, anticipation and hope and trust in the gospel, uh, you'd do that as well for us today. So we thank you for your word. We believe you got something for each of us today, Lord, the, the uh, not-yet-believer, the unbeliever, the skeptic, the wayward believer, the strong believer, Lord, whoever is in the room right now, I just pray that you would meet them personally where they are with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I kind of foreshadowed where the text is going with my little comment there. But uh, to get in, before we get into the text of chapter 13, to understand chapter 13, uh, you don't have to understand the whole book of Nehemiah, but you have to understand chapter 10. So what happens is God leads uh, this man, Nehemiah, to rebuild the city walls in the city of Jerusalem. They've been torn down for 150 years while his people, God's people have been in exile. So he leads this building project. But what you find out as you read the book of Nehemiah is the walls are almost like a metaphor. It's not really just about a building project. God is not just building a wall. God is building a people. And so what happens in chapter 8 is all the people who've been far from God hear the Bible read and it makes sense to them. And they're like, whoa, they have this huge wake-up call uh, to the Scripture. And they come alive to God. And uh, people who perhaps had been distant from God just follow him. And it's a really powerful section of Scripture from chapters 8 to chapter 12. It just recounts all this re- spiritual renewal that took place in Jerusalem for the people of God. And last week we even read they dedicated the walls, and the walls are pretty wide. They're actually marching around the walls and singing with these choirs. And I mean, it's like this huge party of celebration. And uh, in the middle of all that renewal, they make these commitments to God in chapter 10. Actually, what they say to God in chapter 10, it says all the people uh, committed to walk in God's law Uh, as was given them through Moses, the servant of God, to do all his commandments and all his rules and statutes. So in the middle of chapter 10, all of the people come together and they basically say, God, you know, we've blown it in the past. They've repented, but we are all in. We're going to serve you. And then they spell that out. They say, God, here's what that's going to look like. And so the first thing they say is, um, 
hey, we're, we're going to not give our kids to be married to foreigners. Now, this wasn't any, there's no biblical opposition to different ethnicities or different races being married together. That's not what it's about. It's about marrying people who worship other gods. And they say, we're not going to marry other people who worship other gods because that's always gone bad in the Bible. And we've always been led to worship other gods ourselves. Secondly, they say, man, this business about the Sabbath, we're going to honor one day a week the Sabbath for you. We're not going to work. Uh, we're going to rest. And we're not going to let people come in our city anymore who are from other nations and sell their wares. So it's not going to be like a shopping day for us. It's going to be a day for the soul. We're going to rest our bodies. Our children are going to rest. Our animals are going to rest. And we're going to worship you. So they commit to the Sabbath. So they commit to marriage with only other Jews, only other believers. They commit to the Sabbath. And then they have this great detailed promise about giving. So they say, we're going to give to the temple. We're going to give a yearly temple tax. We're going to give... uh, a, uh, our first fruits of our crops. We're going to give something called a wood offering, uh, and we're going to give t- a tithe. So a tenth of all of our uh, produce, whatever we grow, we're going to give that, and that's going to be stored in storehouses. So that feeds all the people that work at the temple, the Levites, the priests, so they can give themselves full time to making sure that this new worship that we're experiencing continues on because we've got people to lead us. And then the last verse of the chapter says this, We will not neglect the house of God. In chapter 13, every one of those commitments is unraveled in in drastic fashion. And so we're going to see, look at that, and and see, it's going to feel like a downer a little bit. But then we're going to hopefully see Christ in it all, and then it's not going to feel like a downer. So just that's as your tour guide through this passage, that's what's on the road in front of us. So I'm going to read it in sections and then comment on it, and then at the end, we will make some application. So Nehemiah 13, we're going to start with verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Okay, so chapter, uh, verse 6, rather, gives us the context. It says in verse 6, all this was taking place. He's going to show several compromises. All these compromises were taking place while I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, uh, I went to the king. 
Okay, so in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, he came to Jerusalem. And then very quickly, they built the wall. They did all the stuff we read. They repented. They started back doing uh, the festivals of the Old Testament. Uh, They built the walls. They dedicated the walls. People moved into the city. That all happened in the 20th year. In the 32nd year, he gets called back. So that means there's 12 years that Nehemiah is the governor, presumably that whole time, uh, in Jerusalem. After 12 years, he goes away. While he goes away, things start unraveling. He comes back, we don't know when, a number of years later. He comes back and he walks into compromise. And the first thing he finds is that they have compromised the temple, which is sort of compromising in their worship. So what happens is the high priest, his name is Eliashib, and he invites a guy named Tobiah to come and basically set up an apartment to like live in the courts of the temple. It's where they used to store the wine and the grain and all the tithes that fed the Levites and priests. Uh, he puts him up in there. And the problem with this is that Tobiah is not a believer in God. He is an Ammonite, and he is one of the top three enemies of the people of God when they tried to build the wall. When they tried to build the wall, you may remember, if you've been around these last months, Tobiah was the guy who mocked them, Tobiah the Ammonite, and said, hey, this wall is so weak, if a fox crawls up on this wall, the whole wall is going to fall down. This guy was jeering God, jeering the people of God, standing against them. Nehemiah leaves and they invite him to move into the temple. An unbeliever from another, who worshipped other gods was not welcome in the temple, much less to live there. Now, why does this happen? Well, what we read is in verse 4 is that Eliashib does this because Tobiah is his family. He is related to Tobiah. So Eliashib basically says, blood is thicker than the covenant. And you're my family, and he, he makes an exception and shows favoritism. He defies the law of God to show favoritism to his family and allows them in there. Well, when Nehemiah comes back, he's stunned. He's more than stunned. Verse 8 says, I was very angry, and I threw all of Tobiah's furniture out of uh, the chamber. Ralph Davis, who is a scholar, was in his writing about this, He writes in this section, not so much like a scholar, when he says, eviction was the answer. Nehemiah threw Tobiah's furniture and his BVDs and his T-shirts and his dresser drawers and his mattresses out on the curb for Wednesday trash pickup. That's the picture. He goes through all of his stuff and he just tosses it out. Tobiah comes up, what happened? You know, everything is tossed out because this is a compromise and, and, and Nehemiah is serious about these things. And so he cleanses the chamber, and then they bring back in the offerings and those, everything that was stored in there, uh, the vessels and everything else. So the first thing is there's compromise in their temple or compromise in their worship, we might say. The second thing he finds when he returns is there's compromise with their money, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in the stations, in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe and Padaiah of the Levites 
and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So he come back, and this is what he finds out. Nobody's giving anything. Now, in chapter 10, the longest commitment they made was to giving. And uh, he comes back, nobody's giving anything. That's why the storehouses where everything everybody brought in, that's where they stored, and then they were distributed to the priests and the Levites and stuff. They're empty. That's why Tobiah can move in. There's space. If it's filled with grain, there's no room for him. But he moves in because they're not giving anything, and they have to go into the fields, it says. He says in here that the Levites and the singers who did the work, they fled to the fields. Why'd they flee? He doesn't correct them for that. They didn't do anything wrong. They are set apart full-time to serve in the temple. Nobody brings them anything to eat because the people have not kept their promise to God. Hey, we'll give faithfully as the Lord prescribed. And so there's nothing for them to eat. So they have to go out and just kind of work the fields or whatever and get something to eat. And in the meantime, we move Tobiah in. And this is how Nehemiah questions this. He says in verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? It's a stark contrast to chapter 10 where the people of God all say this, we will not neglect the house of our God. There's the Sabbath and marriage and giving. We will not neglect God's house. A number of years later, he comes back and he says, why is the house of God forsaken? You ever done that? Made a promise to God? God, if you'll get me out of this one, I will never again. Ever made a promise? Every, every high school student, I don't care if you're a Christian, atheist, what your faith is, every high school student has prayed that prayer. If you'll just help my mom and dad not find out, Lord, I'll serve you my whole life. I'll be a missionary, whatever, God. I don't even believe in you, but if you get me out of this, I'll serve you my whole life, right? People all... I'll never do that again. Man, it was really great in renewal and revival where we're all at the conference and we're having that moment and we're laying it out and we're saying, never again. Lord, we will never neglect you like we have in the past. He says, Lord, why, why, why is everybody forsaken God, he says. Or the promise could be, I won't do this anymore. God, I'm, okay, I repent. I'll never do that one again. We've all made that promise. And that's why this chapter is super relevant to us. Because every one of us can find ourselves in this chapter. Every one of us has made promises to God that we haven't kept. And, and early on, let me just point out that part of this whole exercise is evaluating uh, who keeps their promises. And in this passage, the people of God don't. But let me give you a hint. There is someone who does keep his promises and we sang about his faithfulness for 30 minutes this morning. This text is going to bring contrast to do the people of God keep their promises, their covenants? No, they need a promise keeper. And that's what this is about. Well, he, he sets up the people to receive, the faithful people to receive the gifts. And he must address the people. Because it says in verse 12, they start giving their tithes again, the grain, the wine, and the oil. So Tobiah's out. The Levites and singers are back in. They've got something to eat. They can serve the Lord at the temple. And then he prays this prayer, verse uh, 14. He's going to pray three prayers like this in the chapter. This is the first one. Remember me, O God. Do not wipe out my good deeds 
that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He's in essence saying, God, you know, this is discouraging. I'm gone for a while. I come back. Everything's absolutely out of control. And uh, we're back to square one. Lord, I did my best. I just leave it with you and trust that you'll, you'll be faithful. In essence, is what he's saying. I just trust you, Lord. Okay, the next compromise. There's compromise in the temple. Uh, there's compromise with their giving, their money. And then there's compromise with their time. That's what's next. Or the Sabbath. How they operate on the seventh day that God called them to take off. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads uh, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So the Sabbath day was a day of rest. They were called not to work. And the Sabbath was a gift from God. I mean, all the other nations that worshipped other gods, they worked seven days a week. You just labor seven days a week. But God is kind and gracious. And he says, no, my people won't. That you will have a day of rest. And a day of worship. And on that day, your kids don't work. You don't work. If you've got servants, they don't work. And even your animals don't work. The animals that are, you know, beasts of burden or whatever, that working animals, they don't work. So there's going to be this day of rest. So that is a real gift of God. But it also causes you to trust God. Because what are we going to do to provide for Think about like at harvest time. Man, oh, we got to get out there and pick pick the grain or whatever it is. Pick the harvest, rather. So... That there is this sense in which you had to trust God. And it's a statement that, Lord, I need rest. I'm not God, you are. I need rest and I need you. But they say, no, you know what? We're going to do whatever we want with our time. And we think that the Sabbath day would be a great day to have everybody come in and make it a market day. It really was a day for the soul and for worship. But let's just make it a market day. So everybody comes in, they're, they're treading the wine presses, they're bringing grain, loading up donkeys, bringing them into the city, he says, selling grapes and figs and all kinds of loads. This group of people called the Tyrians, they're bringing their fish in to sell. So we got a fish market. We got everything going on in the city like it's a normal day. The key to the Sabbath was it's unlike every other day. It's a day set apart in an unusual way for the worship of God, to be with his people, to be with your family, to be with the people of the Lord. And so Nehemiah sees this and he says, what is going on? He says, 
to the, to the uh, leaders what is happening. And he reminds them in verse 18, did not your fathers act in this way? And God brought a disaster. He's saying, hey, look, we don't know exactly what year this is he's saying. So maybe it's 170, 175 years since the exile started. We don't know. But he's saying, hey, look, remember like a century and a half ago or two centuries ago or whatever it is. Remember back then how God carted us all off to exile? How the enemies came in and destroyed our temple? And remember all that? That was for this kind of stuff. That was for us saying to God, we don't really care about your law. We'll just do what we want when we want with our time. We'll spend our money like we want. We'll do what we want in the temple when we want as if this is our temple. And now we'll just do what we want with our time. And he says, don't you get that? that that's what got us into trouble. And then he prays to the Lord, Lord, remember me according to your steadfast love. It's, it's covenantal language. You're saying, God, you've been faithful to me. This is a mess. But please, please maintain your faithfulness to your covenant, he prays. In the last section, there is compromise in marriage. Remember, we read in chapter 10, we will not give our sons and daughters to foreigners because foreign spouses mean foreign gods. Verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations. There was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the, great, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. They have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Foreign spouses meant foreign wives. That was the problem. But you know what that meant? Foreign wives and other gods meant not only a compromised marriage, but a compromised next generation. And that's exactly what happens here. He says, look, the people married, some of the guys married women of Ashdod. I don't know who the gods of Ashdod are, uh, but they marry these foreign uh, women and they are enculturated into Ashdod such that they speak that language. They don't even know the language of Judah, so they can't hear the scripture. They can't communicate with their fellow uh, Jewish um, people in the body of uh, in, in God's, God's people there. They, they can't learn the Bible, they can't speak their language. It's, it's not just like one language. It's not that the language is sinful. It just means they're being raised as Ashdodites or Ammonites or Moabites. They're being raised as people that don't follow God, that don't know God's covenant, that don't know what God has done for them or called them to. And this is so serious because a compromised marriage leads to a compromised next generation in this context. 
Ralph Davis says, a single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. Listen, if everyone there marries a foreign person who worships other gods and adopts their gods, it's over in a generation. Think about that. He's saying that if everybody did that, in a generation, centuries of history could be undone. That's why this is so serious. And then he gives us this other picture, uh, which even one of the priests has done so. So the grandson of Eliashib, verse 28, Eliashib's a high priest, his grandson marries the daughter of Sanballat. Sanballat is the chief opponent in the whole book. So we got Tobiah living in the temple. We got the, the high priest's grandson marrying into Sanballat's family. So he's got a foreign uh, wife who's not just a foreign wife, but is in uh, the family of the chief opponents of Israel. And so he's in the line to become high priest. If he becomes high priest and we've got Sanballat's daughter, uh, you know, married to him and, and he is compromising and worshiping the gods of Sanballat and his family, then the entire people will be tainted by false teaching and false living and this sort of thing. So he runs him out. He just says, man, you're out of here. He just kind of kicks him out of the priesthood, kicks him out of there. We can't have that. When he comes in, this is so serious in chapter 25, I mean, verse 25, I'm sorry. Verse 25, he says, I confronted them. That's good. He says, I cursed them. That's good too. It doesn't mean he cussed them out, like it's not that kind of cursing, though he kind of does worse in the next statement. But it's not that he cussed them out. Uh, What it means is this is a religious curse where he's basically saying, hey, look, we got to stay faithful to the covenant, and there's blessings if you do, and there's curses or consequences if you don't. So he's stating, you guys are under consequences here, under a curse of the covenant, because you are breaking the co- breaking covenant seriously by marrying people that aren't interested in following God, and now raising your children in a foreign culture and religion. Foreign culture's not bad, but a foreign religion, that's the ultimate issue here. So that's good what he does. Next, he says he beat some of them and he pulled out their hair. And frankly, I do not know what that means. I mean, I know what a beating is and I know what a hair pull is. Uh, But I don't know why that's in here other than the Bible is honest and he tells us what he's doing. I I do want to say this. um, And I read a number of commentators, different ideas. Some people say it's justifiable. And it's appropriate because it could have been, he could have been acting as governor. This could be a sort of a civil action. I mean, under the old covenant, there was corporal punishment. People got lashes for various things. So it could have been something like he officially saw that those who did this received some kind of, uh, you know, sort of um, official punishment. I don't know about the hair pulling thing, but but it could be that. Or it could be we're just getting a report that he just starts punching people out, which uh, I, I can't. Here's all I can say about that. That is not allowed in the New Testament. Jesus goes in and he does the throw the furniture thing. He does that righteously uh, in the temple to the money changers. But Jesus never uh, assaulted anyone. As a matter of fact, um, when the qualifications for an elder are given later in Titus and 1 Timothy in the New Testament, this very kind of action is addressed. And it says that for someone to be a, an elder or a pastor or an overseer, those are used synonymously in the New Testament, that it says that they must not be violent, but be gentle. So 
someone's disqualified from eldership if they're a brawler. And so in the New Testament, I want to say this to all the new members, that if a pastor here, none of our pastors could beat anybody up, but if our pastors, if our pastors could beat someone up, they'd be fired to be disqualified for that. So I do want to make clear, assault is forbidden in the New Testament for a leader. So here's how I read a passage like this. The Bible's honest and doesn't put the best spin on things. If you want to put the best spin on things, we end in chapter 12 when everybody's marching around the wall saying, praise God, and it's a moment of revival. We don't end on everybody turning away from God. So the Bible's honest. That authenticates the witness. When the Bible tells you stuff that it wouldn't tell you if it wanted to paint itself in the best light, that's a mark of authenticity. So I'm reading a passage like this and saying, that's a report, not a recommendation. Uh, The report is, I beat them and pulled their hair out, but we're not go and do likewise, okay? Uh, The New Testament says something different about it. So I don't know what was happening there, whether it was official, personal, I don't know. So the compromised marriages uh, have led to a compromised next generation. And he closes with a prayer, the third prayer, remember me, oh my God, for good. And then he provides wood for the offering, verse 30, and he provides first fruits. So he gives as they promised to which is interesting as well. He comes back and he does what they promised they would do. So how do we apply something like this? Sometimes Nehemiah, this book is taught, I don't think it's the best way to teach it, but it's taught as like a manual for leadership. I don't think that's the primary point of this chapter, though we made a lot of observations about leadership. That's, that's not an inappropriate um, sort of application to make. I just don't think that's the primary message. Uh, but he is a, a good leader. And... Uh, I want you to think for a minute with me as we think about applying this. Think about his experience of returning and everybody has turned their back on God, essentially. This guy risked his life. He went before the king and risked his life. Would you send me? I mean, the risk was that the king says, you're not happy with the king, off with him. That's what they did. Off with his head, you're out of here, whatever. Kings just acted that way. So he risked his life to go build the walls. And then when he gets there, People are uh, uh, threatening him physically. They slander him. They start this big gossip thing about him. He is resisted at every step. Then the people of God are all messed up. The rich are oppressing the poor. So he's got to step into that. It's like, Lord, I don't need, even the people that are building the wall can't get along. They're abusing each other. So he has to come in and fix that all out. It's a hard work that he has to do. So he, he gives up everything in essence for, to do this. He's not a construction worker by trade. He's, a, uh, he, he's there tasting wine. He's a wine uh, you know, taster for the king to protect the king. And so he comes back and like everything's a mess. And he prays three times, God, just remember me. Be, be faithful. Why? Because it's not working. They're not faithful. It's, Lord, just could you please I pray that what I've done looks like a failure. It looks like he's labored and served and invested in it. He comes back and like, this is a failure. Was this even worth it? I think there's a powerful message that he sticks by the people of God here. There's a powerful message to us that we are to love and invest in others and trust the Lord with the results. This is a super important lesson to learn for all of us. We love other people and we serve them in the first place, not for them. But for the glory of God, we serve them because we're following Jesus, and that's what he tells us to do. So we serve for God. Secondly, we serve because we love them. 
Third, we don't serve so that we feel good about ourselves because we're all successful, because everybody we served is great in following the Lord, and it draws attention to us as tremendous models, teachers, disciple makers, whatever. We don't do it for us. We do it for the glory of God and because we love people. And so we must invest in people and got to trust the Lord with the results. And the results weren't great when he came back. It's a lesson every Christian must learn. Listen, we are to love people regardless of their response, not conditionally. I'll love and serve them if they'll follow the Lord. No, we we love them regardless. We stick with people when they struggle. Nehemiah doesn't show up and go, oh my goodness, what is a mother to do? I'm out of here and just leave, you know, go back home. I'm done. No, he works with them. He acts, he brings correction, but he sticks with them. He prays, oh God, God, do something. I trust you with the results. Every person that serves others has to learn this lesson. You may be a small group leader, or maybe you're doing a Bible study, leading a Bible study with someone else. Maybe you're trying to provide some counsel to someone who's a Christian that needs your advice, and maybe you're discipling someone. Maybe you're just helping someone follow the Lord. You're bringing them to church. You're you're doing whatever you can. And everyone who's invested in someone else over any amount of time has this story. Has this story. You, You gave them of your time, In a crisis, you took their phone calls in the middle of the night and showed up at their house and helped them. Maybe you took them into your house to stay. Maybe you gave them finances uh, to get on their feet. You gave them your time. You watched their children. You brought them groceries. You taught them the Bible. You prayed every day for them and regularly with them. You were available for their texts. You brought them to church. You encouraged them when they were down. You did whatever was necessary to help this person follow the Lord. And in spite of all of that, they turned away from the Lord, from his church, and they just went off a different direction so that now Christ is only like a distant memory for them. And then you come and go, well, what happened, Lord? I, I gave everything I had. Maybe someone comes to you and they're kind of struggling in their faith and you help them and they become on fire for the Lord. They're like the testimony everybody's talking about. And guess what? They're kind of talking about you too because you're the one that led them to the Lord and brought them and is caring for them. And they're on fire for the Lord, but then after a while you don't see them and they're not returning your call. And before you know it, they're back where they were before. Old friends, same old friends, same old environment, same old addiction. They're gone. What do you do in that moment? Maybe you're a parent. You raised your child to know the Lord. You taught them the Bible. You brought them to church. You weren't a perfect parent. Matter of fact, if you could have a do-over, there's a lot of things you would do differently, perhaps. But you, you you did your best. And now they're almost an adult. They're in high school, and it looks like the pathway they're choosing, it looks like, is a different path than the one that you brought them on, pointed them on, carried them on. They're going a different way. Or maybe they're a young adult, or maybe they're a seasoned adult, firmly implanted in a lifestyle that rejects their upbringing. And what do you do? Your heart aches for them. How do you respond when those you love and have invested in drift into compromise and sin? Well, I think one thing we do is we must evaluate our motive and we must come to the place. This is really important. We must come to the place where we say, my heart aches for them and not for me. This can't be about me. 
This, has, this can't be about how much time I invested in that person. How much time I gave to them when they were struggling. This can't be about how much I did for my child, if that's the case. This has to be, Lord, I want to be faithful and invest in others and leave the results with you. And I want my heartache to be over their future and over their eternity and not all about me. That's one thing we have to do. We have to say, Lord, I entrust them to you. And I hear that in Nehemiah's prayers. I sort of hear this, God, be faithful to me. Know that I did this for you even when they didn't respond. I I, I feel like there's some in the room that you're carrying a burden of failure. The person you discipled is gone. The small group that you started disintegrated, and you think, I could probably never lead anything again. I was so bad at that. Um, Your brother or sister or family member that you have tried to be patient with all these years has rejected you, rejected the faith, and now blames you. Your child that you raised in the church is now at another place and you feel like you have failed. Now, in all those situations, if we have sinned against someone, we go back and we ask forgiveness and we get that right. But we have to come to the place where we say we serve people trusting the Lord and we serve people for him and we serve them out of love for them. And people make choices and we have to trust the Lord and never give up on that friend or family member that we've served. It's, it's God, Nehemiah didn't just turn away. There's a time to bring correction. He does in this situation. But we want to stay with and never give up on people. And we want to make sure that our motive is serving the Lord. Because there is no risk in laying it on the line if you're serving the Lord. There's tremendous risk if you're doing it for yourself and to feel good about yourself because look at how great they are because of you. If it's all about you, it ain't going to go well. But if it's about the Lord and them, it will. Secondly, we we need to realize, I think, from the book of Nehemiah and from this chapter in particular, that there are seasons of renewal and revival in our lives and in the lives of others, in the lives of a church, and there are seasons of decline. This is a chapter about backsliding, and that happens. This chapter is kind of surprising to us after reading the whole book, but if you read the whole Bible, this isn't really a surprising chapter. It's not like the whole Bible is about people that were glorious, that were heroes for God, that were amazing, and man, we got this one chapter about people blowing it. It's not like, if you've read the Bible, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I've read this story before. I think I've heard this one. You know, stop me if you've heard this one. I've heard it. That's what it's like. Chapters 8 through 13 are like a microcosm of the history of God's people. Revival and renewal, commitment, we will always serve you following other gods. This is the end of the New Testament chronologically. It's I'm Old Testament. It's not in your Bible. I understand Esther's next in your Bible. But this is the end. Nehemiah is the end. He's kind of the last leader uh, in, uh, in our Bible, the next leader that really comes up that's a prophet, that's a leader like he is, will be uh, John the Baptist announcing Jesus. That'll be 400 some odd years later. So this is where we're left in the Old Testament. While we're left with everybody just kind of blew it, didn't they? Now Nehemiah came back and they started giving and there was some renewal here, but it's still a real downer of a chapter. And you say, well, that's because that's just the Old Testament. It's all different in the New Testament. Uh, Actually not. 
Acts chapter 2 is revival. I've preached that. I've shared that. I tell people that's the vision of our church. They're together. They're in one another's homes. They're listening to the teaching of the apostles. They're praying. The Lord's adding to their number. I'm all about that. Pray for that. Live for that. Dream about that. But it really doesn't stay there. That's the beginning of the church, Acts 2. The end of the church is the book of Revelation of the New Testament. Um, there's debate over when it's written. I, I, I'm of the camp that believes it was written in the 90s for what that's worth. So I think it's probably written in the 90s. So Acts 2 is, you know, the mid-30s, something like that, early to mid-30s. Revelation is 60 years later, let's call it. How does Revelation end? Uh, Revelation's not written so that we can have speculative prophecy seminars. Revelation is written to seven churches. There are recipients of the letter. Of the seven churches, five of them, Jesus says, if you don't repent, your light's getting shut out. Five of the seven churches are on the verge of being judged because they're not being faithful to the Lord. I, uh, I was talking to someone who was telling me, they were basic, basically were saying I've given up on the institutional church, the local church, every local church. And the person's argument was this. I read the Gospels and I look at the person of Jesus and then I look at the church in America and there's no resemblance. Church in America is about this political thing or it's about money or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, when I read the New Testament, I look at Jesus and I say, I see him, that's wonderful. I look at the church in, uh, the evangelical church in America and I don't see anything like that. So... My first comment was, I agree. I mean, no, I don't totally agree, but I agree that we're not Jesus. My second comment was, have you read the Bible? Have you read the New Testament? I know you looked at Jesus, but did you pay attention to his disciples? They were clueless. They were blowing it. They were arrogant. They were trying to sit on his right and his left. They were calling down thunder in judgment. They didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't get it all the time. They were just bumbling the whole time. And Jesus stuck with them. Look at the New Testament. Every, almost every church in the New Testament has a heretic in it. I heard somebody say that. We're building a New Testament church. And the guy says, where's your heretic? They've all got one. <laughs> so... The Corinthians, Paul says, your meetings are doing more harm than good. It'd be, it'd, be like, it'd be better if everybody stayed home. Paul stuck with that church. He loved that church. The Galatians, he says, you're about to lose the whole gospel. So what, I'm checking out? I don't believe in the church anymore? No, he is sticking with them. Jesus sticks with bumbling Christians and bumbling churches. Paul says, I'm with you. The book of Hebrews they're about to perhaps give it all up, go back to the Jewish faith. And he says, don't forsake gathering. Hey, when things are bad, don't forsake, but encourage one another daily, even more as you see the day coming. Have you read the Bible? If you read the Bible, it is all about jacked up people and jacked up churches in the New Testament. There's like like if you look, take the average evangelical North Dallas Christians checklist of what they're going for in a church, you couldn't find it in the New Testament. Let's argue for a little bit of realism here. What does the Bible tell us? It tells us that we all need a savior. 
And we're all desperately in need of his grace. Jesus doesn't give up on people that are blowing it, and neither should we. And this whole line of argument I'm making, it's never an excuse for sin. It never justifies sin. It never justifies being a heretic in a church or a a church that doesn't love people. But it does say this. We need to plead for a little realism in terms of our expectations. We're not in heaven yet. And we're, bro- we're all a lot more broken and weak than any of us want to imagine or acknowledge. And so is every church that's gathering today. You read the end of this and you go, man, what is, what is this about? Well, I think it's about that we need a Savior in Nehemiah 13. It points towards the Savior because that's what comes next in redemptive history. That's what's coming next. So we pray for revival. We pray for chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. May it be in our day. We work for revival. We pray for revival. We trust God for renewal. We do all that we can to follow the Lord and help others follow him as well. But we also realize that people are fallen, you know? And it's, it's never an excuse to become cynical so that we just give up on people. We just give up on the wanderer. We just give up on the church. The ending of Nehemiah fixes our hope on the gospel. In the timetable, the next thing to come is Jesus. And so this book leaves us longing for something more, longing for someone more. It leaves us anticipating a Messiah, seeing that we need a Messiah. It gets us forward-looking, just like the song we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This book, this book says, yeah, you better be singing that song because that's what's potentially in all of us. And it calls us to run back to the gospel, run back to the cross and the empty tomb and say, Jesus, we need you. We don't have this thing down. That's the primary problem with making Nehemiah the hero. This is a leadership manual. There is only one hero in the Bible. It is not Nehemiah. Look at what he was able to accomplish. Everything he did came undone. There is one hero in the Bible, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to look away from all of our efforts. We need a dose of realism that we're fallen, we're weak, and so are all the churches any of us have been a part of. So are all the people we've invested in. So are all the people that we've served, our friends, our family, ourselves. And we just have to keep our hearts humble and say, Lord, my confidence is in your faithfulness and not mine. If your confidence in the Christian life is my faithfulness to God, I will keep every promise I've made. You are on a pathway for a big explosion. Our confidence is that, God, I may not have kept every promise I made at a retreat or in a morning prayer time or after a sermon like this. When I came down to the altar and prayed, I may not have kept all those promises, but you've kept your promise. You will never leave or forsake me. And so daily we return to the cross, we return to the empty tomb, and we say, you're the hero, Lord. You're the one who saved us. You're the one who sustains us to the end. Let's love and serve the prodigal. Let's love and serve the wanderer. Let's realize that Jesus is the hero, and as long as someone's heart is beating, their story is not over yet. Let's pursue and love and serve. And as we greet people in the lobby and as we serve in children's ministry next week or as an usher and as you go to community group this week and as you reach out to a friend in the church or evangelize a coworker, 
or disciple your kids or whatever you're doing that's output this week. May you do it for the glory of God and for the love of the person saying, Lord, I'm doing this, but I'm entrusting you to do it all. You are the one who must act. I'm leaning on you. Let's lean on him and let's lean on him often. And let's watch him carry us and those he loves to the finish line. And let's watch him renew where there needs to be renewal. The Savior has come and he's at work. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.